0: the cost of the city, there's a benefit, uh, and uh, there's a reward. And uh, many of us experience that, and that's why we stay, and that's why we sometimes raise our families here. But there's a city to come. There's a new city. And the people of God are, are called not just to live in this city, but to build and participate in the city to come, which is the kingdom of God, the city founded on the death and resurrection of Jesus, the city that is built on the foundation of Jesus, uh, the city uh, where justice reigns, where everything that we read about in Isaiah 58 is true, uh, where lives are renewed and changed forever. Um, and um, we are going to explore the cost of that city. We're going to count the cost over the next four weeks of building and participating in the city to come. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Jesus' uh, Jesus's teachings in Luke 14 through 16, where he, where he talks about the cost of this new city, but he also talks about the great and joyful reward. To start this series, we have a special guest. His name is Dan Clare, and he knows about this cost. Dan and his wife, Elise, moved uh, to uh, Washington, D.C. after graduating from Reformed Theological Seminary about 15 years ago, and uh, they had a vision for a vibrant, urban Anglican church right in uh, uh, Washington, D.C.'s Capitol Hill neighborhood. And so for the last 15 years or so, uh, uh, they've they've been pursuing the city to come. Uh, Dan and Elise planted uh, Church of the Resurrection in Eastern Market in D.C. in 2004. And uh, it started to burst at the seams uh, not too long after they started it, and so they hived off a congregation in Columbia Heights, and then again in Arlington, Virginia, they just continued to plant churches and plant churches, raise up leaders, raise up pastors. In 2009, I was one of those pastors raised up, and I worked for three years under Dan, learning the ropes of what it means to lead an urban Anglican church, founded in the gospel, built on Jesus Christ. If you've been married by me, guess who trained me? Dan Clare. It was good that he did. This white stole has tied many a knot. So, uh, and I got it in D.C. Um, so uh, when, church, uh, when Emmanuel Anglican Church was in its infancy stage, when it was in the prayer stage, Dan was one of the people who really gave a strong fatherly word of encouragement to go take a risk and see the kingdom come. Uh, in the name of Jesus. And Church of the Resurrection D.C. has played a critical role in planting Emanuel Anglican Church, giving very sacrificially, financially, providing coaching, providing support, um, providing prayer. So, Dan, on behalf of Emanuel Anglican Church, we just want to say thank you to you and to Church of the Resurrection. Why don't you come on up and let me pray for you. pray for Dan. Living God, we thank you for raising up this man to lead and also to raise up leaders and to raise up new churches. We pray, Lord, uh, that as he brings the word to us, you would give us a vision for the city to come uh, as we pray for the opportunity to plant churches down the road. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Great to be with you all this morning. Thank you for this warm welcome. Um, I, of course, have been here interviewing for the children's ministry position, and Aaron said no at first, but after a couple of bourbons last night, I'm pleased to accept it. Amen. Amen. So, it's good to be here in my new new home, getting out of D.C. Um, As Aaron said, this is the first in a series of messages on the cost of the city. Let me ask you, is it worth it living here in Chicago? Is it worth it for for you as you think about it, do the benefits outweigh the costs for us living in d c you know we 've thought about this we 've gone through the exercise many times, weighing costs and benefits and um, We also have to deal with that faster pace of of the city, the higher cost of living, all of those kinds of things. Unlike Chicago, we have other problems, corruption of government, crime, (laughs) school problems. One thing that you really don't have is that you don't get called up for jury duty every two years, exactly when when the day comes. just has to do with the felon to non-felon ratio in the city, um, believe it or not. But the city has, though, infinite number of cultural opportunities and, and joys and exciting things that are happening, um, as you all know, here in Chicago. We There's so much for our kids to learn and do growing up in D.C. And um, so many interesting people in the city. What fun it is to get to know them and, and run with them. And for us, economically, oh my goodness, buying a fixer-upper in D.C. 12 years ago was the smartest move we could have ever made financially. So for us, the benefits outweigh the costs. Yes, for us, living in D.C. is worth it. But there's this other factor that I have to consider, and that is I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for his kingdom to come. And so I suppose that my cost-benefit analysis really doesn't matter at the end of the day, does it? Uh, Wherever Jesus leads me, that's where I need to be, even if that means living in the slums. But the wonderful thing about following Jesus is that wherever he goes, that's where the abundant life is. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else is going to be taken care of. And that means that wherever the kingdom of God is, that's where resurrection life is just springing up all around. Uh, prisoners are being released. The lame are being healed. The hungry are being fed. Enemies are being reconciled. And it's all because Jesus is there, and he's making all things new. And his presence makes life good. It makes life good. Apart from Jesus, whenever we ask, is it worth it? We tend to skew towards selfishness, don't we? We tend to be asking, will I come out ahead? Will my family be safe and will we be okay? But when we follow Jesus, that whole calculus changes because he leads us in, in establishing this new city that Aaron talked about, where everybody wins, where everybody is blessed. It's not a zero sum game in the new city. And so that's the big idea of this series that I'll talk about this morning, and Aaron will continue over the rest of the month. If you think Chicago is worth it, where do you see the city to come? Today we're in Luke 14. Um, the, the city to come is a glorious city ahead. But the long-term benefits of that city require oftentimes short-term uh, costs, right, that we experience here. How do we keep our eyes on Jesus and the city to come while we're feeling all of these pressures towards conformity in, in our lives here in the city? Jesus teaches us it's by regularly counting the cost. That's what we're going to talk about from Luke 14. It's kind of a spiritual discipline that I think Jesus is inviting us into. It's something he wants us to practice over and over and over again, counting the cost. And um, he has a lot to say about it in all of the chapter. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I know you have printed for you part of the chapter in the program. That's my fault. I didn't say what I was going to do very clearly. Uh, so if you have a Bible, take out Luke 14. And... Um, you don't look on with somebody, you can pull up your phone. I know you have a Bible on there. It's your first app, I know. <laughs> As you turn there, let me say another prayer for this. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you so much that you speak to us through it. We pray that you would teach us this morning, all of us, and change all of us by hearing from you. Let none of us leave here having not experienced you, heard from you through your word. Mm-hmm. We pray you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we would have ears to hear, as Jesus said. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So here's some context for this chapter, chapter 14. Jesus was on his way from the country to the city, from the lush agricultural beauty of Galilee, going down uh, down south, but up in terms of elevation to the capital city of Jerusalem, and. Uh, he knows that his arrest, his humiliation, his crucifixion are ahead. He knows that that 's coming, but he 'd counted the cost, and he confidently believed that doing this journey to Jerusalem, going to die in Jerusalem was worth it. He believed it was worth it. He had told his disciples that three days after his death, he would be raised from the dead by his father. And he would be enthroned as king over creation. He would start ushering in this city to come. So, when we come to this chapter, and we sit at the feet of Jesus this morning, we're learning from someone who has already practiced what he's preaching to us. He has already counted the cost. He's on his way uh, to suffer in the present for the sake of the future. And we can learn from him. He will not ask anything of us that he hasn't already chosen to do himself. Along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus attended the Sabbath feast. That's where most of the action happens in this chapter, at the home of a religious leader. And there are four little vignettes about counting the cost. We're going to look at each one of these one by one. So uh, the first one is verses 1 through 6. I'll tell you what, I'm going to read this to you since a lot of you don't have this in front of you, and then we'll look at it. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy or edema, probably congestive heart failure or something like that. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So this one's about Sabbath-keeping, right? Um, and God originally gave us the Sabbath as a, as a gift, a gift for renewal and rejuvenation in Him. But in Jesus' day, unless you were, were wealthy, unless you were part of the aristocracy, the Sabbath was, was more of a curse than a blessing. It was very burdensome. It was very hard for people. And uh, Jesus, all through His ministry, is inviting people to reclaim the Sabbath as a gift, as a gift from God, as a way to be rejuvenated, to be healed, to be made well, in him, a source of life rather than grief. And so on this particular Sabbath, a sick man appears at the feast, as we've heard. the Religious leaders are eyeing Jesus to see what he's going to do. Is he going to heal him and break their rules, their, their traditions about the Sabbath or not? And Jesus asks them this question, which of you, having an ox or a son? Interesting combination there. In the well, wouldn't pull them out? <laughs> and, um, and, and did you catch this cost-benefit analysis there? You catch it. He's counting the cost there in in his teaching. Um, Jesus did the math, and for him it was a no-brainer, absolute no-brainer, since the Sabbath was for the renewal of life. That's what he understood it to be for. He said, "Of course. Who wouldn't interrupt their resting and feasting to go save a life? Who wouldn't do that? Right? It's a simple cost-benefit analysis, and." Even though it offended the religious leaders, Jesus went ahead and did what he said was was the the best way. He healed the sick man. Right in the middle of the feast. Now Jesus invites us into the same sort of cost-benefit analysis. This is what he wants us to practice in our lives. He wants us to ask, is it worth it? Just like we're asking about... The city of Chicago or the city of D.C., is it worth it? In particular, in this case, is it worth it in terms of going against the flow in order to do the right thing? Hmm. The city to come is a place where no one is going to humiliate you for doing the right thing, guaranteed. But between here and there, there are going to be moments, these crossroad kind of moments, where you'll have to decide, do I follow Jesus and risk utter humiliation, being shamed by my peers, by the culture, or do I go with the flow? If you're single and you're not sexually active, you know what I'm talking about. How do you keep going against the flow, night after night, weekend after weekend, How do you keep practicing something that is so unpopular in our culture today? Well, whether you realize it or not, you are doing this kind of cost-benefit analysis, aren't you? You're saying um, it's hard, it's hard now, but it is totally worth it. Because the uh, short-term benefits of the kind of casual hookup culture... Are, are really nothing in comparison with the long-term joys of knowing Jesus and being a part of the family of God, right? And whether you know it or not, the rest of your brothers and sisters in this particular family are cheering for you, are celebrating you as someone of courage who is doing the right thing. I think we could do a better job in a lot of churches of articulating just how much we respect those who are making those kinds of choices. I celebrate your commitment to the Lord. I know that the other leaders here do as well. But whether that's your particular issue or or something else, whatever it is, if you are choosing to do the right thing and you're suffering for it, well done. Keep, Keep going. Keep trusting in the Lord. Don't forget that the benefits outweigh the costs. Let's look at the second vignette. I'll read this one as well, verses 7 through 11, here in chapter 14. Now, Jesus told a parable. He's still at this feast to those who were invited, that is, their attending. And um, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, uh, get up, give your place to the other person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Hey, friend, move up higher. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's another cost-benefit analysis there. Do you hear it? Do you hear what Jesus is saying, for Jesus, it was better to be faithful and anonymous than to strut your stuff and be shot down in, in humiliation. And Jesus lived this out for us. He was uh, in, a, in a wonderful, glorious place in the Godhead, and he left it behind in order, like the prince and the pauper, to go and live in humility, to live in... In total anonymity for the most part, and to die in shame so that he might rise again and start this new city that we're talking about. And so Jesus invites us into this same sort of cost benefit analysis. He says, uh, You should be asking, is it worth it, and particularly in terms of going unnoticed for the sake of the kingdom? Is it worth it? City to come is a place where your work will matter whether or not you get paid big bucks for it. And that's a big issue that's driving a lot of our thinking about, about work and about uh, anonymity. Along the way there, along the way to the city to come, there are going to be times when following Jesus means staying in the shadows rather than being in the spotlight, or taking paycheck that is miserably poor or even zero for doing really good work. Like putting your career on the back burner so that you can raise kids who know the Lord Jesus. All of those years of school and all of that work of pursuing a career changed the world. How could you settle for something so mundane, so dull, so anonymous, is raising a family. How could you do it? Well, you do this cost-benefit analysis, right? You count the cost. You say, actually, it is absolutely worth it. Faithful, behind-the-scenes service to the king is indeed changing the world. It's changing the world, whether the world (laughs) says so or not. And the long-term benefits, the fruit of that faithfulness, is well-known. It's well-established, right? This is... This is uh, one of those um, things that defies our investments where we we can really count on this particular investment as bearing a lot of fruit. Um, Those long-term benefits far outweigh the small gains of public recognition for something in the present. Let's look at the third vignette, starting in verse 12. And this is the longest one, and this is sort of the climax of Jesus' sticking it to the man in this this banquet. Um, He's challenging their religious elitism. He's proclaiming in this that not only will a lot of the so-called undesirables be invited into and part of the city to come, but he is going to be their king. And... um, So that's troublesome to everybody in the banquet. Let's look first at what he said in verses 12 through 14. He said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The resurrection of the just is talking about the grand unveiling of the city to come when the only people who will get in will be the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, or as Jesus said on an earlier occasion, those who need a physician. Jesus said he came to save the lost, which includes all of us. So we confess our sins to him, we ask for his forgiveness. We commit our lives to him, and he saves us, right? But if you insist that you're not lost, if you insist that you're not sick, if you insist that you're not blind, you don't need his help, do you? And there's no place for you in that city. Let's think about this in terms of what Jesus was saying about costs and benefits. Is it worth it following Jesus, particularly in terms of of the kind of needy people that will be our friends if we're serious about the Christian faith? Everybody needs friends. I'm glad to be here today meeting many of you for the first time. And uh, let me just tell you what I'm looking for in terms of friends. (laughs) If you're needy, see you later. I really don't want to be friends with you because needy people No offense, wear me out. I might be willing to help you, uh, but I don't want to be friends with you. Let me tell you who I am looking for. I prefer people who are smarter than me, but who uh, think I'm smart and make me feel like I'm smart. Uh, I prefer friends who are good-looking, and they think I'm good-looking too. I prefer friends who are wealthy, and they don't know and don't care that I'm cheap. (laughs) And you know why I prefer friends like this? Because I'm needy. Because I'm sick. So Jesus is looking over my shoulder at my cost-benefits analysis that I've been working on, and he just says, no, this is all wrong. He says, remember, I prefer to be friends with people who are needy. That's who will be with me in the city to come. And... And I hate to admit it, but I know he's right. Jesus goes on in this this chapter to tell the parable of the great banquet, starting in verse 15. He describes three confirmed guests who, at the last minute, decide not to come. And they come up with these absurd, insulting excuses for why they're not coming. Uh, First, in verse 18, there's the man who bought a field, but then he needed to go and have a look at it. Seriously? (laughs) Seriously? Who buys a field? Who buys any real estate without having a look at it first, without having inspected it very carefully, right? Who would do this? Jesus's hearers would have certainly recognized in this that this was one of those I'm sorry I have to wash my hair kind of excuses, you know? It's a lame excuse and it's intended to to insult. It's intended to insult, to humiliate the host. Second excuse verse 19 about examining five yoke of oxen. It's very similar. No farmer with any sense buys equipment without having tested out the equipment, right? And again, Jesus is here, sort of seeing this as a slap in the face. The third excuse is the worst. It's the most insulting. Verse 20, uh, the bridegroom, he certainly did not get married that day. Any village in the ancient Near East would not have had two feasts on the same day. They wouldn't have had two feasts in the same week. It's too much work. It requires the work of the entire community. So he had to have been married some time previously. And all he says is, sorry, I can't come. I have a wife.
0: <laughs>
1: it's such a lame excuse. But he, in fact, he doesn't even say sorry. He doesn't even say sorry. The other two had said sorry. He doesn't say anything. except, said, I have a wife. Can't come. <laughs> So this was the most impertinent one of them all. And again, the message of all three excuses was the rejection of the host himself. That's what we have to to hear in this. It's it's pointed at him to slap him in the face. And Jesus told this story as a parable, right, to show how the religious leaders in particular were slapping him in the face. Uh, They didn't like him. He was healing on the Sabbath. He was hanging out with all of these needy people, these undesirable people, He was friends with them, he was eating with them, he was touching them, and they didn't like this at all. So the parable ends with all the sort of needy people that Jesus attracts are gathering at this great banquet, which is a picture of the city to come, and then in verse 24, all of those who rejected Jesus will themselves be rejected from the banquet, they'll be rejected from the city to come, right? So... Let's do the cost-benefit analysis on this one. What are the costs and benefits of our elitism when it comes to friends? To the extent we exclude needy people from our circles, we're actually insulating ourselves from the truth of our own neediness. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when we welcome the needy in as friends, we show solidarity with them, and that helps us understand what we truly are. That's an eternal benefit to us, because remember, those are the ones Jesus came to save. The sick, the needy, those who are well don't need a physician. Back in Washington, it feels like the only thing that matters is who you know. Every happy hour, every Christmas party, every fundraising gala is just another opportunity to put on your best suit and go and shake hands with people who might help you uh, become king of the hill. And even at church, though, thank God, it happens rarely. Still, sometimes people can be very dismissive um, with those who are of no apparent use to them in making connections. Time is short. Young professionals are so, dare I say, needy. Uh, They just don't have time for real friendships in the race to make those connections. Jesus says, actually, yes, you're right. The only thing that matters is who you know, so long as it's me. (laughs) But you won't know me unless you admit that you need me. And that's the crux for us as we count the cost in this one. At the end of the day, we need him more than we need anybody else. We need him more than we need all of our connections. But as soon as we choose him, we discover that knowing Jesus opens the door to a whole world of needy people just like us, and my life is a whole lot richer because of them. You see this in this church. You admit you're needy, you come into this community of friends, and you find your, your, your life is so much richer because of this family. Same thing when the Damianis moved to D.C. Um, back in 2008, I think, is when you moved. And, um, you know, the Lord sends us people as gifts. This is what I've found o- over the years as a church planter. He sends us people as gifts. It, it was as if when uh, Aaron and Laura arrived, that they had little tags, ribbons and tags, notes on them that said, to Res, love Jesus, because I know you needed one of these, right? As, these are the sort of people he sends into our community over and over and over again. Needy people who come to help other needy people and we find, because we needed Jesus, because we chose him, that our, our connections grow and our community expands and we help one another and bless one another. Our lives are filled with meaning and joy. Hey, Dave, it's time to go get the kid. All is finished. Um, this is the fourth and final vignette. Verse 25. Outside the banquet, Jesus summarized his teaching about counting the cost for the people in the crowd, that is, his growing family of undesirable, needy people, the people who were not invited into the banquet with the rich. And even though Jesus had already affirmed earlier the Ten Commandments and the part about honoring mother and father, he he says there may be times In following me, when you have to even break with your biological family. Verse 26. Some of you may have discovered this in your walk with Christ. You have to make a break um, somehow to be faithful to Jesus. He he says it may even cost you your own life. He says in verse 27, um, which is something they probably didn't understand at the time. He says... You've got to carry your own cross, which of course made a lot more sense after the the Good Friday and Easter that was to come. Verses 28 and following, he compares following him to counting the cost in a construction project or a military campaign. And the bottom line, the last three verses, is that following him requires undivided loyalty, complete 100% allegiance, those who make only partial commitment are worthless. Verse 35, they're no good to be used as dirt or as manure. The overall message of this last vignette is that we must count the cost of following Jesus knowing that he expects our 100% complete devotion to him. In our culture, we're afraid of religious elitism, I mean uh, religious extremism and we have good reason for this on on our soil here over the centuries from the Salem witch trials to the 9-11 attacks um, there have been many things that have happened many terrible things that have happened in the name of God so let's be clear that the complete allegiance that Jesus is talking about is something different from that it's the kind of love of God and love of neighbor that Jesus practiced in the gospels, we can see what he means by reading his story and finding out who he was. But n- nevertheless, because we're afraid of religious extremism, and especially if you've grown up in the evangelical church, because we're, we're leery of sounding like we're too serious about Christian faith, <laughs> um, we have oftentimes underplayed the kind of 100% commitment that Jesus is requiring in this passage. We've oftentimes said instead, "Hey, you can be a Christian and be cool at the same time. Our our movies are almost as cool as the world's. It's okay. Come on, um, just be nice, and nobody will ever know." But throughout this passage, and especially in these final verses, Jesus is telling us completely otherwise, isn't he? And in fact, far from trying to pull one over on us, to trick us into making a commitment to him, Jesus is being utterly transparent about what he expects of his followers. Quite clearly, he expects us to give absolutely everything And he expects that we will want to. He expects that we are going to think this is the best decision we could have ever made. Like my wife and I talking about the house we bought, the fixer-upper we bought, it was such a good deal, we should be saying the same thing about following Jesus. He expects us to engage in this process of counting the cost regularly. It's like a spiritual discipline. It's something that you do routinely You weigh the costs and benefits, and you say, I am all in. I'm fully committed because it's a no-brainer. Like the the woman who stands as the man kneels before her and offers up the diamond ring, and she's like, absolutely, right? I'm all in. That's the sort of response that we ought to be having to Jesus as we encounter him week after week, in worship through his word all the time. He's he's wanting us to engage in this counting of the costs, weighing the risks and rewards, and giving him our all. The kids are coming. Let's pray. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for your word. A hard word, but a good word. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us and help us to make this commitment we destroy to offer up of all that we